America has created empire through several avenues, some economic and some more traditional, as in occupation. Examining the influence of American occupation on food in the Philippines, Alex Orquiza uncovers the psyche of colonial Americans. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Renee Alexander Orquiza Jr. Alex is Associate Professor of History at Providence College in Rhode Island, and his concentration is on 19th and 20th century history. He's the author of a new book called Taste of Control, Food and the Filipino Colonial Mentality Under American Rule. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much for having me here, Liz. Well, first of all, I want to ask you what drew you to this topic? Because a lot of times people who have degrees in history and study history don't actually study food. So I want to know how you got there. Sure. It's a fun story actually to tell because I never thought that I would be able to put two of my favorite things together. I was a history major when I was in college and then immediately after college was working in kitchens around San Francisco and then ended up taking classes at the California Culinary Academy and at the French Culinary Institute. And during that time realized that I was beginning to see the world more and more, not only as through the lens of an historian, but as someone that was interested in the food. And as a Filipino American, I had a lot of questions about why the story of the Philippines, which is to me is essential to understanding 20th century America, was not in our textbooks, was not in the large classes, was not in the intro classes at the universities. And the lens of food became, for me, the easiest way of putting those two things together. Well, I mean, because if you look at food, then you see the exchange of cultures, right? And for right. me, like the, the, the exchange of cultures and, and as a Filipino American was absolutely in everything that I was eating when I was growing up, going to Filipino parties, going back to the Philippines. And once I was lucky enough to, to get the chance to, to research this and look at old historical sources, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. You know, that the food was the way of telling that story that was missing in our, in our, in our history textbooks. I think what you're saying certainly applies to almost any uh, group of immigrants who came to America in large numbers. I'm, I happen to be half Sicilian, and mm-hmm. uh, there were tens of thousands of Sicilians who came to New Orleans at mm-hmm. the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, and it certainly made a big difference in the food of the city of New Orleans. Right. It's that same story, and that's one of the things I love, is that the story it's different because it's it's a special story, but every one of them can be understood by somebody else who has the same kind of background. You know, it's, absolutely, yeah, it's yeah. Wonderful. I think like the, the the early versions of the ideas for the book came about when I was living in the United Kingdom, and I started to miss the food that I grew up eating and cooking in California. And the place that I would source those uh, ingredients was actually like halal markets 
which were part of the, the South Asian diaspora that was going on in, in the UK. And that's when I started to realize, oh, wait, like, like food is a way of talking about these migration stories, not just within my own family and my own heritage, but throughout the world. Right, right. I, it's definitely true. And I always, when I go to a new place, I try to shop all of those markets that are not like yeah. your chain supermarkets because you find all kinds of wonderful things there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, and you learn about the people that are there and how they got there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, it's really, it's really fun. All right. So I also wanted to ask you a little bit about doing this as a dissertation and then turning it into a book, because those are two different purposes to write this information. How did you make that transformation? Ooh, yeah, that's uh, took slowly. <laughs> This is the first answer. But yeah, yeah, I guess it, like it, to preface it, for those that, that, that are unfamiliar with the dissertation process, uh, you basically have, you know, anywhere between four to seven years uh, to write for an audience of four people in a graduate institution, which is totally different from, yeah, we're actually going to think of marketing this to the general audience and to academics as well. So I basically stripped it down to the studs, held on to all the research and realized that like, what I wrote for my four professors in graduate school was different uh, in language and in tone to what I wanted to convey to a general audience. The research is the same, mm -hmm. the, the stories are the same, the conclusions are the same, but the way that I tell them uh, and, and, the, and the, the evidence that I, the way that I frame the evidence is a little bit different. So I held on to all the research, held on to all the facts, and then realized I needed to tell the story in digestible ways. And there were five different things that I was able to see. Okay. And what were uh, the those? The cookbooks, five? the advertisements, uh, the cookbooks, the advertisements, the menus, like the, the, the different source bases. Okay. The way that I was telling before, it was like a straight chronology. But then mm -hmm. I realized that if I stepped back and I told this through different kinds of ways that people are experiencing food culture in five different ways, you know, like the, their initial accounts, advertisements, uh, the menus, uh, the cookbooks, and travel guides like five separate chapters that are focused on those five different things, then the, 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 it became much more relatable and much more tangential. And I could actually have the, the voices speak for themselves in a much clearer way. So you talk about the, the period at which the Americans were in the Philippines. And at that time, I think a lot of the things that they, that they the Americans were sort of the lens that they were seeing the Filipino food through and the food culture of the Philippines was very similar to what was happening in America at that time, because the idea of making food scientific mm -hmm. and making everything clean mm -hmm. and um, making everything basically like not icy or seasoned or all of that, that was actually happening in America. And, and you had people who were nutritionists and they were going to immigrant communities, even in America saying, oh, don't do this anymore. I remember my grandfather telling me stories of being approached by nutritionists in New Orleans and being told you shouldn't eat tomato sauce. And I mean, you just don't tell Sicilians not to eat tomato sauce, <laughs> but don't eat tomato sauce because tomatoes are going to be too stimulating and um, 
it was like, of course they thought, and don't eat garlic and all these things that you just found so basically in, in the food, um, they were being told to eliminate them. And I just saw that in your book, the same the same story happening, but it was happening in another country. So they were actually trying to change the food of the country, which was just really enormous. Um, so that to me, I thought was very interesting. And then also building on the Spanish colonial period where there had been yet another culture that was being imposed on the Philippine community. Um, so tell me about that. How did yeah. you transition from one to the other? Right, right. No, there's it's great. There's a great observation because uh, the more I read these cookbooks and uh, directions for how Filipinos were supposed to cook in the 1910s and the 1920s, the more that I realized they were basically just lifting from, from like Atwater and the Fanny Farmer cookbook, which mm -hmm. was published at the turn of the century during the time that this all began, you know, like right. 1898 in the case of the Philippines. So I went back to the sources and read, you know, my, my Fanny Farmer, read my Atwater pamphlets, looked at the kinds of uh, texts that, that these cookbooks in the Philippines were recommending. You know, there's always a section for additional reading. Mm -hmm. And it was straight out of this exact domestic science movement that elevated a certain way of cooking, you know, like basically from the Northeast as a tool for Americanization, assimilation and entering into like the, uh, like the, the culinary traditions that were, distance and separated from points of origins from countries of origins and I, I was like you kind of struck like why are they trying to change the eating habits of 10 million people you know like the Philippines <laughs> is a large place 7,000 yeah. islands yeah. and that's where the connection to the larger mission of what the United States is trying to do to the Philippines mm -hmm. you know like the Americaniza the Americanization process became so clear to me like it wasn't just that they were trying to impose and elevate uh, English as a language of instruction in public schools. It's that the public schools have to look like the ones that they that they were producing in the United States, and right. that meant a curriculum that included food, that included domestic science, that included agricultural science, and they were just lifting from the same textbooks that that were very popular in the United States, particularly in places like Native American schools and African American schools. And that's where like the next level of historical connection to me was very, very clear that we're looking at like a racial lens of the United States in the 20th century. And, you know, like who enters into these distinctions of American is very largely dictated by culture and by society and by the consumption of society and culture. And that means food. And how much has the Spanish already influenced the food? Mm -hmm. Great question. Uh, very, very, very thoroughly, specifically uh, for, for the upper classes in the Philippines, mm -hmm. those that could afford to eat, you know, like a, a roasted pig with expensive imported butter and wine that's coming over from Spain. Like those are the upper classes in the Philippines, and they want to announce that they have the wealth to bring in imported goods. So particularly for the wealthy in the Philippines, like Spanish food and the Spanishized cuisine, that's a mark that you see all the way back to the 1600s. Once that wealth is able to expand, in the 1920s and 1930s with like a relatively larger Filipino middle class. Mm -hmm. Those that are traditionalists will try and adapt more of Spanish cooking into their, into their meals. Those that want to adapt and show that they are now fluent in the new colonizers food, they're bringing in American cuisine as well. So that's really when you see this hybridization 
of Spanish and American in the 1920s and the 1930s, which ironically, many Filipinos do not want to so, talk about. They'd rather talk about the Spanish, uh, the, the Spanish traditions rather than the Americans. Do you speak Tagalog? I do, with a very heavy American accent. <laughs> <laughs> but I could imagine that that was very helpful in doing your research. It was, yeah, yeah. Like my parents are first uh, generation immigrants. Uh, they came over in the 1970s. So I grew up uh, hearing it, although they didn't, did not want us to speak it at home. They were afraid that we would have uh, Filipino accents when we were speaking English. So, you know, 30 years later, <laughs> I got, I got, it went the other way for me. But yeah, when I was doing research in the Philippines, everyone was very happy that like I could speak Tagalog, that I was at least making the effort. And, and really that, that I understood the story, that I understood, you know, that Filipino cuisine was, was more important than the denigration that had happened in the historical time period. Right. Well, did you know that, of course, I'm in New Orleans in mm -hmm. Louisiana. And did you know that the first Filipino settlement was in Louisiana? Yes, yes. I've tried to find the, the actual location. I've read the, the there's, there's a very famous Harper's Bazaar, like a, a Harper's pamphlet that Harper's, shows like... Har Harper's Magazine, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harper's Magazine uh, a pamphlet of like the original Filipino settlement that traces back to the Spanish alley trade. And yeah, like I've, I've always been very, very impressed with like, I think the, the Vietnamese American community out in, in, in New Orleans, uh, out in Louisiana has picked up the story and, and, and has the same thing. It was, it was all based on like the coastal settlers, specifically from a place in the Philippines called Cebu. Like they were the shipbuilders that hopped onto the galleon trains and settled in Louisiana. Right. And then they would hop off the, hop off yeah. the galleons <laughs> when they got there. Yeah. Yeah. And they have influenced the food of, of New Orleans in particular, but also South Louisiana, because they, they brought specifically, I mean, this is one example, they brought specifically the, the tradition of salting and fermenting fish and drying it. Yeah. And that we still have companies that do that today in Delicious. South Louisiana. And yeah. you can just go into a grocery store and buy your dried fish. I mean, I dried, dried shrimp rather to add to your gumbos or your jambalaya or whatever <laughs> it is. And, you know, I think of it in my sort of Sicilian hat. I think of it as similarly as using that umami kind of base yeah. things, the way Sicilians um, use anchovies. Right. And basically the same thing. Yeah, it's garum. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it was a very, very vibrant community until a hurricane basically wiped it up away. Right, and right. we have that issue here, <laughs> right, right, our hurricanes. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So I was trying to think of all of that as I was, I was reading your book because I don't believe <laughs> that the people who came here Mm -hmm. Of course, they were here before the Americans went to the Philippines, but it was a very interesting mix of what you could find here and what your food heritage was. And it was mostly men who came. And so right. they were mixing with runaway slaves and native people. And so it kind of turned into this kind of mishmash. And if women at that time were the primary cooks in a family, 
than the men who came influence the food, but not by actually cooking. So right. you have a, a interesting kind of amalgam of yeah. people. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back you're to reminding your... me that. Yeah. Okay. No, okay. Go, go on. Say what you were going to say. There was a, there's one other Louisiana connection that I was thinking of just, just as you were uh, reminding me uh -huh. um, in the early 1900s, there was a big push to try and industrialize the agriculture that was going on in the Philippines and like uh -huh. produce higher yields. And one of the first crops that they targeted was, uh, was rice and uh, domesticating rice for larger yields. And the Filipino agriculturalists, or I should, what, more accurately, American agricultural scientists that were working in the Philippines would always say, look at what we did in Louisiana. Like we have to replicate the, the rice fields in Louisiana here in the Philippines. And while, while superficially, you know, like somewhat similar climates, like totally, totally different uh, challenges between the two. Mm -hmm. So. But yeah, yeah, Louisiana was like factoring very largely in the way that uh, American agriculturalists were thinking about transferring the Philippines. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's also true that they were not really growing rice in the same environment as as an archipelago of islands. I mean, yeah. it's just yeah. not the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to use the same technology doesn't necessarily make any sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let's get back to your book. So what would you say your biggest takeaway? I mean, obviously you're writing history, so there's nothing to change about what happened. It mm -hmm. just is what happened. Mm -hmm. But what is it that you think remains in the Philippines today from the time that so many Americans were there. It seems to me that there were millions of people and just a few Americans and that they, the Americans, tried to make all kinds of changes. But if they're not easily adopted, and it seems like they would eventually just kind of go away, and only the things that seem to be useful or helpful might have been salvaged as a lasting legacy. On the other hand, what is it that we can learn from that today? So I, I can answer it in, in, in two ways. I think the, the first is like looking at the products and the, the actual food that, that remains. Okay. I think what, what, what has definitely persisted since, since this time period in the 20s and the 30s are a couple of specific ingredients like can and milk, absolutely. Like canned and condensed and evaporated milk. That is a staple in Filipino baking and Filipino savory cooking. I just made spaghetti for my daughter for her second birthday. And I made sweetened Filipino spaghetti where I opened up a, a can of condensed milk. Milk. Like, <laughs> like I think there, there's a connection to the narratives that were made as in advertising in the 1920s and 1930s that like imp imported canned milk was healthier and uh, like we could debunk it now that that it that it was a nutritionally superior but there was a really strong narrative of, of superiority uh, but what was it what was it nutritionally superior to carabao milk is what they're saying oh yeah. okay and they were tr like the american agriculturists tried to bring dairy cows jersey cows to the philippines but they weren't going to survive in you know tropical heat where it's averaged 82 degrees through the year uh -huh. right <laughs> so like there are a couple of important foodstuffs that remain like if, if trace the story out a little bit further you have things 
things like canned goods uh, in the form of like uh, corned beef and uh, um, uh, spam, like after World War II, like that is that is like a, a like a cultural uh, phenomenon, not only in the Philippines but throughout the world. But yeah, these like processed, imported canned goods absolutely remain. Huh? Her story that 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 remains is is the allure that's manufactured by American imperialists about goods that are from outside of the Philippines. And the reason why I say this is like, when I watch like Filipino soap operas today, whenever a, a character has to say like, I'm going out to, to see the world or I'm going out to show I have money, the place that they go to is the United States. And there's still that fascination with like the, the, uh, with the, the colonizer, with the metropole of, of, that, of that social and cultural uh, milieu. Mm-hmm. from the 20th century that lasts into the 21st century and I, I think like that's that's part of uh what the book is trying to to, to convey like when I say it's uh, the, the American colonial mentality uh, the imperial mentality mentality it's it's really that like that that think piece you know the, the, the this way of seeing the world as like you go to the United States for the arbiters of taste mm-hmm. and obviously like the world is a big place but for some reason that that remains okay not to the same, like in some ways, even stronger than the the, uh, the, the like the mentality of the, the of the much longer colonizer of Spain from 1521 to 1896. Like the, the 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 attraction to the United States today is still much stronger. Well, do you think that that may be simply because it's the most recent? Absolutely, the most recent, largest uh, one of the largest uh, places for diaspora, thanks mm-hmm. to the 1965 Immigration Act. Uh-huh. Filipinos is now the second largest Asian American group in the United States behind Chinese Americans. So like it's partly because there's so many ties to the United States uh, uh, that, that are like, you know, uh, tangible and familial and immigration wise, you know, like the diaspora. Mm-hmm. But like that diaspora happened for a reason. And <laughs> like it's that historical relationship. And like when you interrogate the historical relationship, you see, you know, like the reason why so many people are going to the United States and elevating is, is it is that for 30 years, there was like this like concentrated effort amongst American educators to make the United States elevated over the Philippines using multiple different things. And food is the tangible way that they are reminded every single day, you know? And like the, the fact that they, they create this hierarchy of like American food being better, despite the fact that like this location is 4,000 miles away from the, from the United States is fascinating to me. Like why was, why, why was it so successful? And then you see just how widespread it was. So one of the one of the areas that I found the most interesting was the one about hygiene mm-hmm. and kitchens and being worried about getting diseases. The Americans being worried about getting diseases from the people who were cooking for them. And mm-hmm. so, were there any changes that were lasting from from that part of the? imperialism or if you go and i'm not talking about in hotels and things like that i'm talking about in people's homes all over the various islands mm-hmm. um is are there lasting changes or do people revert back to old ways because they work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's kind of a mixture of the two Okay. Like you'll definitely see uh, like the, the sanitation buckets uh, that were promoted in the early 20th century of like an open air market mm-hmm. in the Philippines. 
But there's also like wisdom in, in the old ways that that was dismissed. Like I think about the way that my grandparents used to store their food in it's particularly where my dad was from. He was from a part of the country that to this day doesn't have access to large amounts of refrigeration. Mm -hmm. So you would buy like a block of ice, you know, and like make it last for three days. Mm -hmm. And no one got sick, <laughs> you know, like you didn't have to buy like, the, the, the most recent like magic uh, Lux, whatever deluxe uh, refrigerator. Uh, but, but that was the narrative that was pushed for so many people in, in the 20s and 30s that you had to adapt. You had to adapt and buy these new things. Well, and then you also had to have power in order yeah. to use them, which yeah. also is an element of, you know, change. But yeah. obviously, even in the United States, certainly here in, New in Louisiana, we have hurricanes often enough that knock out power for five days, 10 days, you know, yeah. and everybody just uses ice. Nobody even thinks twice. It's just like, okay, now we have to use yeah. ice. Yeah. And so yeah. the idea that somebody would worry that ice wasn't good enough is, uh, <laughs> is that's crazy because we yeah. do it still. So yeah. why yeah. somebody would get upset about it just doesn't, it almost doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, right. But I think, the creation of making these ice plants. And I think that by the time that I'm writing the time period of the book, there, there's there's five big ones in the United States or in the Philippines. The creation of these of these new ice plants is supposed to be a marker of technology, improvement, progress, you know, like electrification, and mm -hmm. and and like look how much better we're doing it than the Spaniards were doing it. It was always like a measure against like the previous colonizer. Right. The, the, the US is very intent in saying. We're doing it better than the British. We're doing it better than the French. We're doing it better than the Spanish and all the other uh, Western powers that have colonies in Southeast Asia. Well, what have people what have people rejected? That uh, we'll the idea that yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I was gonna be I was gonna try and be witty about it, but like I, I guess the, the the key thing is that American food is superior. You know, <laughs> like, like there are, as soon as Philippine independence comes in 1946. There's a, there's a spate of new cookbooks that come out that use nutritional science. And this is what I want to focus on in the, in the sequel to the book. Mm -hmm. They use like nutritional science numbers to show like the caloric value and the, and the saturated fat values of Filipino food versus Western food. It shows that it, it shows that Filipino food is actually nutritious. If you cook it, if you cook it healthily and you don't just like throw a ton of coconut milk in all the time, which is the way that the simplified characterization of Filipino cuisine that a lot of Americans were giving in the early 20th century. Like it's actually a very healthy cuisine, which is why you know, these, these, despite the promotion for, for 20, 30 years of American food being better than Filipino food, you'll see vestiges, but it certainly wasn't a, a resounding win on the part of American food scientists. It was also like a reassertion of, of food values and food traditions that, that had existed for a much longer time than the Americans were there for 48 years. Like there was a re return back not only to the Spanish-sized uh, cuisines, but also like a reassertion of the regional cuisines of the Philippines. You know, mm -hmm. seven thousand one hundred seven islands. Like the food's going to be incredibly diverse. Right. So to try and like pull an entire country into eating out of, you know, like a couple of different items that are made in public schools was was always going to fail. It was always going to fail. The the procedures and some of the ways that they are preparing food the cooking techniques that stuff persists like like the the rationale behind you know a lot of the domestic science like that enters into a into a common understanding in, in fact like domestic science is still taught in, in a much more uh uh general and in in a spread way across the philippines than it is in the united states 
Mm-hmm. You actually have a very informed uh, discussion about nutrition, but just about any Filipino because it's, it's part of the standard curriculum. Uh-huh. Um, but the food is, and the examples have switched away from Fanny Farmer into like the original stuff of the Philippines, which is, I think, a, a, a very good conversation to have. Well, and it also just reinforces the idea that food reflects culture and people are going to revert back to their culture always. And it becomes a way to keep your identity separate from a conqueror, imperialist, whatever, colonizer. Your culture in, in all of its manifestations, whether it's the clothing that you wear or the language that you speak and the food that you eat, that's, that's your identity. And even if you're moved from your place, mm-hmm. you to carry those things with you because that's your identity. I've, I've definitely got, I feel it right now. I'm looking, I, my, I live in Boston. I grew up in California. My parents were in the Philippines. I caught a cold uh, from my daughter and my wife was saying, yeah, you should have chicken noodle soup. And I said, no, no, I'm making Filipino rice porridge. <laughs> so that's always <laughs> what I eat whenever I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what my dad ate. That's what my mom ate. That's what he eat in the Philippines when you're sick. <laughs> and it's comfort. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when I was growing up, my grandmother used to give me a clove of garlic every day, like a vitamin. And I am <laughs> sure that I smelled like garlic all the time. But and it was not it wasn't cooked i mean this was a raw clove of garlic every <laughs> day and uh eventually my mother told her to stop <laughs> but my my grandmother was just you know trying to make sure that i was healthy and as yes. far, as far as she was concerned this was as good as a vitamin pill <laughs> i love it i love it yeah especially considering like how bad garlic could be if you get fresh garlic every day you know, that means that you have a constant supply of fresh garlic. That's great. Yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, and I, I have to admit that I don't eat it every time I'm sick or anything like that. But, you know, we've got confit garlic in the refrigerator all nice. the time. And there's just nice. always garlic everywhere. And I, I'm always amused when people say, oh, I don't eat garlic. And I'm thinking, you're eating it right now. You just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. I, don't tell them. I don't want them to be upset. <laughs> not, garlic is not a problem where I, where I come from. Yeah. <laughs> we fry it up and throw it onto our rice. That's oh. actually like a, like a staple of Filipino breakfast. Is like you have last night's rice, which is hardened. Uh, you, you, you saute and brown like slices of garlic and then you throw last night's rice and you've got, it's, it's called sinanag. It's a garlic fried rice. Sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I like that hardened thing. We do something in Louisiana with uh, leftover rice, which is to mix it with water and a little bit of sugar and make it into like a batter and leave it on the counter overnight so that the yeast in the air kind of start to fall into it and ferment it. And then the next morning you form it into balls and fry it. And that, um, that becomes, it's called kala. And uh, it's, you know, it was the sort of thing that people, you know, people from France came 
to Louisiana in the 18th, early 18th century. And some people actually were here in the, the late 17th century. And so nobody had refrigeration, nobody heard of electricity. And so this was just what you did. You know, you spread out your white rice a little bit and let it dry so it doesn't get kind of that fuzz that grows on it, you know, and uh, that's what you do. So I'm sure that all of those techniques were done in Europe in some ways, simply because that's what you had to do. And everybody through whether it's trial and error or whatever, they learn those techniques so that they are saving their food because food was too precious to let it allow it to spoil. You had to, you had to preserve it in some way. Right. And we yeah. use whatever was left over. Oh yeah. Right. right. Yeah. That's that's one of the things. Like uh, uh, one of the ideas that I picked up in the in the book was there's a large denigration of like the uh, of certain traditional Filipino dishes. One of them being a, a dish called uh, adobo, and this is probably like the national dish of the Philippines at this point. It's the most popular one, and it's it's usually a combination of of uh, bay leaves, garlic, peppercorns, salt, and uh, the key ingredient being vinegar. And the vinegar was to try and like preserve and like quick pickle whatever protein you throw in. And it's usually the combination of like pork and chicken. And uh, it, it's it's basically to extend the life of a protein in the tropics. You know, well, to, it's to, like to making ceviche. I mean, exactly. it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And like this this dish is so widespread that you go anywhere in the, in the country, there's a version of it. Okay. But you see like American uh, food observers coming in and they're the early 1900s saying like this is this is uh inedible and it, it uh, uh it's it not the, the healthiest thing despite the fact that there are centuries of experience doing this and multiple variations of this from around the world right. but because it's coming from this tropical country with people that they're trying to colonize and trying to enter into like an american form of eating like it, it becomes denigrated it becomes racialized it becomes vilified mm-hmm. ah yes Well, it looks like we've run out of time, but I really wanted to thank you, Alex, for this conversation. It was really, really great. And people should remember to read Taste of Control because it is a really interesting, interesting story about American colonization and food. (laughs) Oh, thank you very much, Liz. No, this is a a real pleasure to be able to share the work and to have a conversation with you. I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.